Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Today's Bible reading will be taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and verses 20 through 22. Um, When I'm done reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. Genesis 3, 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verses 20 to verses 20 to 22. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Itunu. Good morning, everyone. Nice to have you here, especially if you're with us for the first time. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you around. My name is Femi. And I would love to, as Dami said, not just um, see you now, but see you even after the service. And and beyond that, we'd love you to uh, consider being part of this church. Can we just quickly pray as we start? Lord God Almighty, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to speak to us. You are the shepherd of our souls. So lead us to the right path. Let truth prevail. Let evil be conquered. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My children, um, today is really the middle day between both of their birthdays. 
and um, it's funny how quickly they develop or how quickly they grow. And I was thinking about how, not just have they grown, but how have they developed as human beings? In other words, what kind of job has my wife and I have been doing? And the thing about human development is a big issue for us. So many of us are at different stages in our lives. Some may be in our 20s, some may be in our 50s. And we keep thinking, where am I as a person? When you think about the women's uh, plan, uh, planned um, um, meeting on February 1st, which is also about human development. It's a question we often ask. It's a question organizations ask, not just about how do we move this, well, good organizations, how do we move this company forward? It is, how do we move this company forward by moving our people forward? And so many of us here think about our human development. It's, it's a very important question to ask. Now, as a church and as a Christian that goes to a church, the church should be asking, how do we see these people develop? Now, don't get me wrong. The church exists for more than just our individual human development. But it doesn't exist for less than that. So is it spiritual? I'm going to this church because of my spiritual development. Or is it maybe financial? I'm going to this church because of my financial development. Well, first of all, I should say that there's not a single category or area through which uh, human beings are meant to develop, particularly when you come to a church. Um, now, not all of the categories should be offered by the church, but I do think the church should offer more than one. So, as a Christian and as a human being growing, at least in a church, let me give you five categories through which you measure whether you are growing as a Christian or as a human being. The first is the theological or the biblical. By that I mean the Bible teaches doctrine, like there are teachings in the Bible. What is your view about God? Not just, I've met with God, God knows me. Which God are you talking about? Because the Christian understanding of God, the Islamic understanding of God, the Buddhist understanding of God are all different. So you need to know which God. In other words, when you read the Bible, you have to gain knowledge. The biblical, the theological. The second is the spiritual. In other words, after you've talked about God, you know you are not meant to have a relationship with the word of God. You are meant to have a relationship with who? God. It's not a relationship with knowledge about God. It's a relationship with who? And so we start talking about things that develop us in that, things like prayer, things like collective worship, the spiritual. The third is the practical. You know, there's a book in the Bible called Proverbs. It gives you a lot of wisdom on, on, on life's lessons. So learning about discipline, learning about focus, learning about hard work, planning, vision, all of these come under the practical, amen? And then the fourth is the inspirational. Now by that, I mean many times, and some of you are here today, you are discouraged. Some of us have fallen on hard times. Some of us are in places of true suffering, in places of despair. And what development means in that regard is how do you come out of those things? In other words, where is the fuel that helps you fire up yourselves in difficult times. That is the inspiration. And the final one is the moral. 
It's asking the question, is there universal good and evil? Is there universal right or wrong? And how do I do what is good and stop doing what is evil? Now, here's the challenge. Many times in our churches, we are focused on one or two or the others. And many Christians now, I'll say in the city of Lagos, are really focused. Many Christians are focused on going to churches that will offer us. And maybe many churches are focused on two, three, and four. Two, three, and four. That is, most of the teaching would be around three and four, inspiring you and giving you the practical, but so that we don't feel guilty that we're not doing the bad thing. Oh, also, you should grow in your prayer life. We should grow in your fasting life. The challenge is, if you try to develop Christians in anything less than all five, it's not just that you will not be developed adequately. It is that you start to present a distorted view of what Christian development is. And so in this series, we want to tackle one part that is often neglected. We're looking at the moral. And by that, we are going to look at this big issue of sin. For many people, sin is passe. It's not that it's not a word. It's a word, but we don't like to talk about it. So for non-Christians, you oppose it. You don't even believe in the Christian understanding of good and evil. But for some Christians, you avoid it. You know the Christians that avoid it? The ones that say, oh, when we start talking about all of this, that's just for religious Christians, not like me. Those judgmental Christians. What we really need is practical Christianity. So I leave all that sin for those people that like to judge and look down upon people. You avoid. For the other Christians, you ignore. In other words, you say, it's for those judgmental uh, it's for those um, Christians that are, uh, that are not living according to what the Bible says. So the ones who are looking for practical Christianity say, it is not, those things are not for me because they are Christians that like to talk about it. Those ones then say, the other Christians then say, it is for those people who just live their lives without any moral standards. But you see, sin is a serious issue because it displeases God. It destroys our world. And get this, you cannot truly develop as a human being or a Christian if you are not actively combating sin. And the funny thing is, contrary to what a lot of us Christians believe, we fail in our battle against sin because we have not really truly understood it at its root. By that I mean sin has an essence. And you don't start to get victory over it if you don't begin understanding what that essence is. And so our beginning sermon in this five-part series is to look at the very root of what sin is by going to the very beginning. And so we've titled it, Sin Has an Essence. And it will be looked under these, it will be, uh, go under these three headings. One, the serpent's trickery. Two, the human's misery. And three, for you, this one is for you, the divine conspiracy. Some of you, some of you that have read the book will know what I'm talking about. So the serpent's trickery, the human's misery, and the divine conspiracy. So let us start the sermon. First one, serpent's trickery. Now, I don't know how many of you are into football. 
Um, right now, my uh, Premier League team is having a very, really, really hard time. So at times like this, I'm not going to talk about them. The fact that they have won more matches than only three teams in the Premiership this year, I cannot believe this. This is, when you talk about how the mighty are falling, it's really bad. We can't just get a win. So I'm not going to talk about Arsenal Football Club today. I want to talk about, I want to do a little bit of nostalgia. I was thinking of who my favorite Nigerian player of all time was. And it boiled down to two people. Two people. It was hard to choose. The first person was a guy called Kanoanko, Papilo. You know what I loved about him? Not just that he was very creative. Is that many people thought that he and I played the same. You know, I, in fact, on, uh, when we were serving, my name was Papilo on, on, on the youth camp. You know, the guy had skills, and I think I've even met him before. You know, we're both tall. They said we're both a little bit long. And, uh, you, know, and uh, you know, I used to do that. What do you call that? Show me your number. Who knows that? Show me your number. You can't understand. You don't have skills like me. All right. But as much as I love Kanu, my favorite player was still JJ Okocha. Yeah? Only player that I know that they even sang songs. Julius Agu actually did a song for Okocha. I mean, Okocha was wonderful. And maybe it was his longevity over a period of time. I remember the first time he wowed everybody was in 1993 National Stadium. We were like, who is this 17-year-old? And we saw what he did in Germany, everything. Now, here's the thing with Okocha. Anytime Okocha threw a wonderful pass, or he invented a new skill, and you know Okocha invented skills. Remember the one he brought into in World Cup 98? He invented skills. Anytime we saw those things, what was he telling you about Okocha? That this guy is good. The guy is good. When you saw him score a fantastic goal, you said, a fantastic freak, you said, this guy is good. In other words, what was happening? His creativity, his creative skills was telling you something about his essence. What was it? He was good. All the things that he did showed you something about him. That when it comes to football, this guy is good. At the very start of the book of Genesis in chapter 1, seven times, verse 14, verse, uh, verse 10, verse 14, 12, 18, 21, 25, 31, it says about God's creation that it was good. Now, with the culture, remember, the skill tells you something about the character. God's creation then should tell you something about what? Him. What is it? He. That's why we say God is good. And all the time, never forget that. That the Bible starts with this picture of a God that creates, but it is telling you something about the essence of that God. That God is good, and he is good what? Now, if he is good all the time, it means everything that he does is good. It means, therefore, that when he sets a law or he sets laws, those laws must be good. Why? Because he is good and whatever proceeds from him is good. You see, you don't first read the law and say, is this law good? The law has to be good because the giver of the law is what? Because he is the one that created, he, cre he existed before his creation, he alone can be the one that can tell you what is good in that creation. Amen. God is good. And his laws are good. 
But whenever that law is given, is broken, then we have what you call sin. You see, in verse 16 of chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2, after God created these human beings, he gave them one command. He says, the Lord God commanded them, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave them a command. If they break it, all of a sudden you find what is not good. And that is what we call sin. In fact, later in, um, in, 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 the, in the Bible, you have two verses. Take 1 John 3, 4. What does it say? Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Or take Romans 4, 15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, you will be right if I asked you... Um, what the definition of sin is, and you say it's breaking a commandment. That is the, if you like, the, the most commonly understood, and it is a right view of what sin is. It is breaking the good commandment of the good God in his good world. Amen. But if you have to gain mastery over sin, you have to understand a little bit more than that. Because it is true that it is breaking God's commandment, but that is not the whole picture. To gain victory over sin, we have to understand the why, the how and the why of how Adam and Eve became lawbreakers. Because they eventually did break the law. But how and why did they break the law? So we want to understand sin's essence by looking at the how and the why. And let me say this. This happens through a four-step interactive process between the deceiver and the deceived. The how and the why happens because of a four-step four step interactive process between the deceiver and the deceived. What is that four-step process? Doubt. And after doubt, we then have oppose. And after the oppose, we have fantasy. And after the fantasy, we then have sin. And I'll explain each of those. So let's go back into that text. The deceiver and deceived, and we want to break down this four-step process. Now look in verse 6, in verse 1, it introduces us to a serpent. Whenever you see serpent, if you like snakes here, they will have a problem. Snakes have never, ever been good. They will never, ever be good. I don't know. Well, I'm, I, let me not. But the serpent, Satan, we are told of his name later in the Bible, this Satan is the very embodiment of evil. And the, how they became lawbreakers, how they started sinning, he is at the center of it all. What does he do? He deceives. He is the deceiver. How does he do that? Well, the first two of that process belong to him. Notice what he first does in verse, uh, verse uh, 4. He first sows doubt by questioning whether God really said something. Don't forget in 2.16 and 17, God said, don't do this thing. Then he asks um, Eve, did God what really say? Have you really heard God? So he starts with, does God really say? Eve answers him. By 4 to 5, he moves from, did God really say to what? You will not surely die. 
opposition. He first starts by sowing a little bit of doubt. Did God really say he wants to distract you? And then the next thing he says is, you will not certainly die. Remember he says he's more crafty. More crafty than any of the, the creatures God made. You'll see why. Because in verse 4 to 5, he does something very puzzling. Very puzzling. You know what he does? Let's read it. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why is that puzzling? Because Satan does something we're not used to seeing Satan do. He tells the truth. He tells the truth. What does he say will happen? He says that if they eat of it, what will happen? Their eyes will be open. They will be like God, knowing truth and good and evil. Read verse 7. After they ate it, they said, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Go to verse 22. Then the Lord God himself said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Evil, exactly what happened. Satan is saying, there is something about eating this tree that God doesn't want you to know. And we all say, ah, Satan is the father of lies. So he must have been lying. He wasn't lying. I'm not preaching heresy. It's what the text said. I'm sure you can see it. It's not even me that said God himself said it. But don't be fooled by his craftiness. Here's why. First of all, let's go back to 16 verse 7 and 17 of chapter 2. 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded them, the man, you are free to eat from the tree, from any tree in, gar in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Guess what was not here? God did not say, if you eat from it, you will not your eyes will not be open. He didn't say that. God did not say, if you eat from it, that you will not know good or evil. Did he? Did he? In fact, God even called it the tree of the knowledge of. And so does he have to say everything again? Here's what Satan was doing. Craftiness. He presented it in such a way that made them think that he was giving them hidden truth. Here's the second thing. You know, he says, you will be like God. But if you read chapter 1, verse 27, God said, let us make man in whose image? They were already like God. But there was a way that they were, they, there was a, a way they could become like God that was not good and would not lead to their flourishing. He didn't tell them that one. So what Satan was really doing was this. He said, come, Eve. I want to give you one hidden deep truth. Anytime somebody comes to meet you and says they want to give you one nice hidden truth from the Bible, what should you do? What should you do? Tell them that they should hide that truth. You don't want to see it revealed. So he was saying, there is something you don't know. 
There is something God didn't tell you. And I want to give you this hidden truth. By implication, this is what Satan was saying. God is prohibiting you because God doesn't really want you to have the best. That is the deception. He kept this thing away from you. But I have come to show you that there's something better behind it. Why do you think he didn't want you to take from this particular tree? God is insecure. And he doesn't want you to share his glory. And so he's keeping his best from you. There are two dangerous things at the heart of that state, that thought, that God is keeping his best from you. And it forms the very heart of sin. So the first thing we looked at the deceiver, he does what? He sows doubt and then he opposes God. Now we look to the deceived. The first part is the fantasy. What does it mean? Now Eve eventually, having been distracted by him, look at what happens in verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desiring for gaining wisdom. All of a sudden, as the deception started to seep in, what happened? She started to see differently. She saw. Wait a minute. The tree had always been there. Is it that she didn't see before? But no, the hidden truth had captivated her. And she said, ah, ah. It's true. This thing is actually nice. This thing is actually desirable. This thing is actually good. What is she saying? There is something more desirable than God and there is something more good than God. All of a sudden, her reality, the way she perceived the world, had become different from the way the maker of the world perceived the world. Every time at the heart of sin, idolatry always makes us see the world differently from our maker. Because the thing that she now saw was good and better than God had now become her own God. Anytime you desire something more than the one who created what you desire, you have now chosen a new God that is now the true God that you worship. Amen? The first thing was idolatry. She changed who that God, who her, the real God was, and it changed how she saw the reality of this world. She started to live in a fantastical, a life of fantasy which was not real. But then there was something else, a second thing. As Satan is offering this false reality, you know what he's doing? He's assassinating the character of God. What Satan is saying is, by this God keeping this best from you, he's keeping the best. He may be good, but there's something better than him. By him keeping his best from you, he is not as good as he says he is. And there's something even better than him. He's a bit insecure. He's a bit devious. Every time we see that new reality, it is because our view of God has now changed we now start to engage in character assassination of God. No, it's not that you're saying God is evil. You're just saying that God is not as good as he says he is, and that is a grotesque evil. And once you buy into this process, 
This process of seeing something else is better than God, idolatry, and this process of saying that God is not as good as he is, divine character assassination, you know what you will do? You will eat. You will sin. And what did she do? It says after she saw, she took some and ate it. Sowing doubt, opposition to God, and now a new reality that you've a new reality that you see, and eventually that leads you to sin. Guys, at the heart of every broken commandment is idolatry and divine character assassination. Why do you lie? You know why we lie? The reason we lie is because getting into trouble with a particular human being is uh, not getting into trouble with a particular human being is more important to us in that moment than displeasing God. Simple. Ah, no, I'll lose my job. Mm -mm. You prefer not to lose your job than to what? Displease God. In other words, at that point, not lose your job has become more important to you than who? Idolatry. But if your God is more important to you than God, then your job is better than God. Your job can give you a better life than God, divine character assassination. Maybe I should tease this further with one other example. This four-step process, let's take something like, that still happens today. Let's put it this way. Let's say you are dating someone, all right? And some of us here are dating people. I want to apply this to what we may call sexual immorality. Now, that looks like a technical word, so let's break it down to what I mean by that. The Bible clearly says that you should have no sexual activity outside of marriage. There should be no sexual activity. Let me, okay, this is sexual immorality. No sexual activity. A sexual immorality is sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Should I say it again? What is sexual immorality? It is sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. So the Bible clearly says no against that. Amen? Wow. Amen. Ah. <laughs> this work I just started. <laughs> okay, this is for you. All of you that want to say amen. So if that's what it clearly says, what does Satan do? He first does what? Doubt. So the first thing we think, we think, we don't see Satan there, but we think, we start saying, so you've been dating each other now. It's been two years. You guys are waiting to be financially stable, or you know you need to be sure that you are going in the right direction. So it's two years. And of course, the body starts getting hot. So the first thing that happens is say, did God really say no sexual activity? Like all of no sexual activity. Or what is even sexual activity, sir? You see the question. That's the doubt. Start. You, you linger on that a little bit. Then when you linger on that a little bit, the next process is you start going away from people who say no sexual activity is no sexual activity. You start hanging around people who start saying, who also are asking that same question. Because the church is too judgmental. The church is too, and this is just, you know. So you hang around those people long enough. You eventually get to the point where you then say, he said no sex. He didn't say no sexual activity. 
Because you start drawing, you now start saying, is, is kissing there? Say, hey, kissing, my friend, kissing is sexual activity, whether you like it or not. But then you say, no sexual activity, and there is sexual activity, but no what? Sex. So you have now opposed. Then the next thing is, after a while, you start seeing how this sexual activity is good for easing sexual pressure. It is pleasing to the eye. You start, no, sorry, you start seeing how pleasing to the eye his chest or her breast is. You notice that kissing is desirable for gaining information on compatibility. And when you are there, you know what's happening next. You go and eat. And when you eat, you never get one bite of the, of the fruit. You will now. And I say, ah, Father, forgive. you will cry, you do everything. But you still, the thing, they're still, you know, it's still inside your teeth. They're small of it inside your teeth. You bring it, I say, ah, this thing. <laughs> you now look, you see the fruit is there again. You go, ah, ah. you find at some point you just be eating, eating, eating with just sin. And then we start arguing and start saying, hey, I can control myself. I said the Bible never, the slippery slope. Don't give me the slippery slope argument, which I said the slippery slope argument is done, defeated. But here's the deeper thing. Not only are all these elements are on display, but engaging in sexual, by engaging in sexual immorality, you have questioned God's goodness by acting on this inordinate affection. You have said, by God saying, prohibiting me from this, is he really good? Please make no mistake, that's exactly what's happening. And while you think you may be wise, you have just become the deceived of the deceiver. It leads me to my second point, the human's misery. The human's misery. Let's take another, uh, let's go back, if you like, helicopter view, back to Adam and Eve. What Adam and Eve, many people will look at it and say, oh, this useless Adam and Eve, this useless Adam and Eve. Let me first say something. In Christian theology, it's basically saying this. There's something called Adam and Eve were perfect represent, representatives. What that means is that if Adam and Eve were Solomon and Chidima, We'll be talking about this useless Solomon and Chidima today. <laughs> you understand? It, the, you, you would have behaved in exactly the same way that Adam and Eve behaved. So they were perfect representatives. Now, when God comes to meet them, God asks this question after in, in, um, 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 taking them through some uh, questions. He then says, what is this you have done? Do you understand what you've done? Because they didn't. Let me tell you what they did to us. The second thing that's really important about this story is that they passed down to us sin's DNA or the sin gene such that we cannot but sin. Because from the very birth, from our very inception, we are born in sin. Job, let me read a couple of scriptures. Job 15, 14. What are mortals that they could be pure? Or those born of woman, of, of woman that they could be righteous? 
Or Psalm 51 verse 5, surely, surely, assuredly, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Or Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, indeed, there is no one on earth, no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and does what? Never sins. Why? Because we have the sin DNA passed on to us. We have that passed on to us because what does Adam say about Eve in verse 20? Adam named his wife Eve because she will become the mother of all living. She's our mother. And our mother passed on the DNA to us. You now say, ah, I don't like this. This is character assassination of women. Wait. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Adam too is your father. Sin entered the world through what? One man. Our father and our mother did us bad. Many people like to talk about ancestral. This is the main ancestral cause. <laughs> what is it you have done? What they didn't understand is that they had just unleashed a terrible catastrophe in the good world that God had created. All of a sudden, we now realize that sin breaks things. It broke Adam's own psychological relationship with himself. It breaks us psychologically and emotionally, personally. It broke the social connection among ourselves. Look at verse uh, 16 of chapter 3, Adam and Eve. It says, to the woman, he said, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. It wasn't just marriage issues that he brought about. It brought about human interaction issues. But it also brought about the breaking of our relationship with the environment. Verse 17 to 19. To Adam, he said, cursed is the ground for because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, are and to dust you will return. It broke the relationship with us psychologically. It broke relationships with us socially. It broke our relationship environmental. It is the cause of wars. It is the cause of killings. It is the cause of abuse. In other words, things fall apart because of sin. Why? Because at the very center, the center could not hold. What was the center? The relationship between God, the maker, and his people. At the heart of the environmental, the social, and the psychological broken relationship was a spiritual relationship that was broken. In verse 8, when God comes, what did they do? They hide from him. What is this you have done? And the worst thing for us, if we look at that environmental thing, it says dust you came from, dust you will return. All of a sudden, sicknesses, diseases, all of those things are moving us towards one place. I mean, you think about it. Every time I come here, I have to do it. My back is paining me. My neck, is, my leg is paining me. Some of you are already having you know, signs of all manner of diseases. Maybe you have disease here. Some of you, please don't cough. <laughs> and all of that is pushing us somewhere. Look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God did not create death. But sin brought it. That's why in Romans chapter 5 he says this. Not just that sin entered through one man. He says death through sin. And this is the way death came to all people. Why? Because all sin. Not just Adam and Eve. You too. So what is it 
what do we then do when we've sinned? Hopefully, having seen that kind of terrible thing, we react the right way, don't we? Sadly, no. Adam and Eve give us exactly the picture of what we do after we sin. We often react with two types of attitude, self-preservation and self-salvation. Let's take the first one, self-preservation. In verse 8, look at it. It says, then the man and his wife, after they had eaten, then the man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What were they doing when God came? They did what? They hid. They were hiding after they sinned. Now remember, if God is the ultimate source of truth and goodness, if God is the ultimate source of truth and goodness, when they are hiding from God, what are they hiding from? They are hiding from the one that can give them the truth about themselves. And so God asked them a series of questions in 9 to 10. Uh, where are you? Uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to? So after God asked them all these questions, they now say, ah, God, it's true. I shouldn't have eaten from that tree. I did eat. Is that what they did? No, they do exactly what, and don't, again, don't be blaming Adam and Eve. They are our parents. They just do as we do. What do we do anytime we have been confronted with a sin? You know what we do? We do what that wonderful, uh, that philosopher told us. The guy's name is Shaggy. He says what? We do what? We say, it wasn't me. The guy asked a question. It wasn't me. They asked Adam, did you eat out of it? Adam said, he didn't say anything. He just said, the woman. She gave me, and I ate. Ah, ah. Eve. <laughs> did you eat out of it? He said, the serpent. Refusal to see the truth about our sinfulness, your sinfulness, is self-preservation. Too many of us, when confronted with the truth about ourselves, we will blame either others or we will blame circumstances. I lied because of intense financial pressure. I cheated on her because she wasn't sexually satisfying me. I lost my temper at him because he provoked me. If only, why are you provoking me now? I can't forgive her because she betrayed and hurt me. Is this you? On the one hand, we are being deceived. But on the other hand, in the place, after we've been deceived, we still continue to do Satan's bidding. And there's one more thing we are doing when we are doing this self-preservation. You know what it, we are doing? Again, we engage in divine character assassination. Notice what Adam says. When God says, did you eat from the tree I command you not to eat? He says, he says what? The woman, you. God, is your own fault. If you did not give, if you did not, if my father and mother were not poor, would I be an armor robber? After all, you're the one that makes every human being now. Why did you put me in this situation? 
God, why, why are you putting me in this difficult situation? In other words, we are saying, every time we sin, and then we don't accept responsibility, we are saying, if only you had created this world in a better way. It's your fault. If only you make these children behave this way. If only you allow this woman to... This woman was the reason. This is the hideousness of sin. It is your fault that I'm in this mess. In other words, everybody and every circumstance is at fault except you. That is, you trust nobody. That's what they told us. Trust nobody except what? Uh, yeah, that, did they ever give you that counsel growing up? Trust nobody except what? All right. So if you trust yourself, right, if you got into a mess, not because of, of you, and it was because of God and everybody else, so you don't trust God, you don't trust anybody else, you only trust yourself. Who is going to help you out of that mess? Who is going to help you out of that mess? Yourself. So it leads us to the next thing, self-word, salvation. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. They are the ones that can save themselves. Listen, without ever deeply seeing where we, we messed up, what we try to then do is to quickly resolve a situation. You sin. You never want to say it is you. You just say, let's move on. Let's, okay, how can we solve it? Because you don't want to deal with the difficult reflection of saying, how did I mess up? But you see, where do you think attempting to fix circumstances or other people as solutions, where do you think they end up when the real elephant in the room is ignored. Let me tell you where it ends up. First of all, it ends up with a displeased God, but it also ends up with no change in your life. And if there's no change in your life, remember what we said at the beginning, you cannot truly develop as a human being. With all the skills, all the practical skills that you have, you are not a fully developed human being. You may be building a wonderful business empire, but there are so many people that you've left in your wake totally hurt. You may be building and helping a lot of people, but you are damaging your wife at home. I told someone I counseled years ago. You know, after a while, people had tried to speak to this person. It wasn't going well. So I told the person, I said, you are not changing because nobody can talk to you. You're not accountable to anyone. Do you know what the person said to me? And when I said that, I mean, knowing the person for years and people like coming to talk to me about the person, and, if I, and I know the person cannot be talked to. So I finally told the person, you can't be talked to. You're not accountable to anyone. The person said, that's not true. People talk to me all the time. Yeah? <laughs> I said, but I have tons of people. So it's not that I'm lying or I said, I have tons of people telling me they cannot. And I see the way you react when they try to tell you about your fault. You become very defensive. I tried to engage that a little bit. After a while, the person, I said, because normally you flare up. You get too angry. After we went, the, the person now blew up. And the person said I was biased. <laughs> to which I said, you see what I'm saying? To which the person said, they didn't care. They don't want to talk about it. And they don't want to listen to me again. Listen to me. Those who have the disease cannot have the cure. 
Whatever your God is, your chosen God is, that will be your savior. And if your God is false, your savior will be powerless. If your own personal desires are your God, if you come back to yourself to save yourself, guess what? There will be no power available for you to change. And that is the human's misery. And that leads me to my final point. Oh, spent a lot of time. The divine conspiracy. Now, if our inherent evil, our inherent badness cannot help ourselves, then where do we go? Where do we go? If everyone, if there's no one that does righteous, if everyone always sins, where do we go if we truly want to be saved? Well, we go to the only one that is good, isn't it? I love the way Psalm 62 says it. He says, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Only the true God can be the true savior. Notice that it was out of his mercy and grace that he did not wipe out Adam and Eve immediately. Instead, what did he do? Look at verse 21. He gave them a more appropriate clothing. The Lord God, the one who was offended, is the one that made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. To which you say, but what about the full consequences of sin? I thought he displeased him. I thought he said you will certainly die. Does he just pardon freely? Of course not, because sin is too costly. Notice that he gave them clothing of what? Of what? In other words, some animal died. Don't miss this principle. His mercy and his grace come at the cost of another's life. And in this case, it was an animal. But if you read verse 23, because he banished them, you notice that this kind of covering wasn't what really saved them. It was just giving us the principle, this principle of salvation, that God's mercy and grace come at the cost of another's life. Can we say that together? The principle of salvation is what? God's mercy and grace at the cost of another's life. That's the principle. But does it work out in reality? How is this problem of sin eventually resolved? Because you cannot help yourself. I can't keep giving you... It's not God told us don't do this, so don't do it. God told us do this, so do it. Because ultimately, because you have the sin DNA, you will still break God's commandment. Amen? So how does he resolve it along this principle? Well, it's all about trees. Look to your neighbor and say, it's all about trees. I say, what do you mean by it's all about trees? Notice in verse 22 that there is another tree. He said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life. There is a tree of life. And he says if they eat out of it, he will live what? So why didn't he want them to eat out of it and live forever? Because if he lived for, if he ate out of it and lived forever, he would live forever in a sinful condition. 
And that was never the plan of God. Because if he lived forever in a civil condition, this whole world will always be about people destroying themselves and there will be no hope. So there was the tree of life there. Which makes me wonder, I used to ask this question years ago, and you probably have asked this question. Why is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If there is a tree of life, there should be what? Why isn't it called the tree of death? Why the tree of knowledge and good and evil? You know why? There is a third tree. The tree of death. You see, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of evil, that is the pathway to then eventually eating of the tree of death. Do you understand? In the day that you eat of this, you will what? Surely die. And when he's talking about death, he's not talking about just your normal physical death. That is one, but it's a precursor to really eating. There is a time when you eat of the tree of death. That death is shown to us in Revelation chapter 20 and is in 14 and 15, but it's given in another metaphor, not the tree. It says, death and Hades, that's death and the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire. So death even has its own death. Physical death has its own death. There's going to be a time where physical death will be no more. It is thrown into the what? Lake of fire. And the lake of fire is what? Read it. Eternal death. That's what it means. Anyone whose name was not written or found in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. To go to that tree, to go to that tree, after you go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there's only one place you're heading to, and you know where it is? It's the tree of death in the lake of fire. And guess what? Because all of us sin, we're heading there. Let one of you raise up your hand and tell me that this week you haven't sinned. That, why do you think we confess? And if we all sin, where do you think we're heading? We're heading straight, marching to the tree of death. In other words, Satan, the serpent, and sin ultimately prevail. Except. 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 Turn to your neighbor and say, except. Say it one more time. What if the principle of salvation could work again? What if we could receive grace and mercy at the cost of another's life? What if someone went to the tree of death for us? I want us to read this verse of scripture together. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Let's sing. Let's read it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that Listen to me. This is the wonderful message of grace. This is the wonderful message of the gospel. That you and I were heading for the tree of death, but one in our place. God who is our own savior. God who created us became a human being and went to the sin of death instead of us so that we can partake of the tree of life. Just when you thought sin and death, sin and Satan have got us, and truly they got us, God will not be mocked. God will not be fooled. Because the cross of Calvary was indeed the tree of death. It was on the cross of Calvary that Jesus took the death, the eternal death for all those that stop, that accept their sin.
Yes. And stop trying to blame others and stop trying to save themselves. Will you come to him? It was on that tree that when Jesus died, remember what he says. He says that we might, now, we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. Do you know why? Do you know why? You may say, but I thought Jesus was dead. No, after Jesus ate of that tree, he ate of the tree of life because he came back from the dead. And so now that he's alive, he gives us the power to live to righteousness. He gives us the power to be victorious over sin. He gives us the power to look at sin and to look at God's commandment and to say, God is better. To say, God is more desirable. To say, God is more lovely. And it's on account of that he promises us. On account of continuous victory over sin. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, listen to what he says. He says this, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give him the right, or give her the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Don't tamper with sin. Jesus is better. Stop playing and stop making excuses. You know why? Jesus is better. No matter the promise that the serpent is now tingling in your ear, no matter the promises that of desirability, of goodness, the lies that he's saying about God, Jesus is what? Better. Because the more you focus on Jesus, you know what happens? Unlike Eve that focused on the tree and she saw the goodness of the tree, when you focus on Jesus, you see the evil and the death on that tree. Right now, run to the tree of death. But the tree of death where your Savior is. So that from that tree of death on the cross, he will eventually lead you to the tree of life. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos <laughs>